This week in the course, we're going to be looking at the ways that interest groups lobby and interact with the executive branch and the judicial branch. And we're going to start this exploration by looking at presidential and gubernatorial politics, particularly presidential and gubernatorial electoral politics. Uh, talked a lot about uh, interest groups' relationship to elections in the week two opening video uh, and focused that entirely on legislative elections. The way that interest groups interact with uh, executive elections are uh, similar in the sense that they bring the same kinds of resources to it, uh, that it's different in that there's a different relationship that is established. Uh, the guiding question for this lecture today is why do interest groups invest so much time, money, and effort into presidential and gubernatorial politics? And that question might seem like it's pretty obvious. Uh, the answer to that question is just like, duh, because these are extremely important and powerful positions, so of course interest groups want to uh, get the right person into those positions. And that's correct. So part of what I'm going to do in this short lecture is really just elaborate on that obviousness and explain why it is so obvious. Um, the executive power, the, I should say executive powers, uh, there are a variety of them, uh, are obviously very useful for achieving uh, policy goals. Uh, there are um, direct mechanisms that executives can use, executive orders, as well as other kinds of executive powers that are essentially legally slightly different from executive orders but uh, have more or less the same effect of establishing a policy. Um, they are uh, tools that allow interest groups to get policy victories very quickly and often very comprehensively. The difference between getting one person to enact a policy that they write themselves or that their people write for them uh, and, uh, and lobbying a legislature where multiple people have inputs and it's going to go through multiple stages, committees, uh, there's going to be all kinds of things that will happen uh, during that process, amendments, all kinds of other uh, um, inputs and ideas, and the pressure points are multiple. The thing about the executive uh, lobbying is that the pressure point is singular. Uh, now, there are uh, executive positions and then there are executive appointments and they're both important uh, because the winner of the executive election gets to make all kinds of executive appointments. Um, here's a difference between presidential and gubernatorial politics is that presidents get to make all of the appointments. There's a unitary executive in our federal system. Uh, so that whoever wins the presidency gets to make all the appointments. Now, I'll talk about in the next lecture the difference between certain of those appointments because some of those appointments uh, are ones where the president can hire and fire, and so there's a direct level of control. Some of those appointments are just appoint, and then they, they go on there, uh, they do their business, and there's an important distinction there. Uh, and the same thing is true with state governments. There are certain positions that the governor can fill and then fire that person and fill it with somebody else. Uh, and there are other positions where that person gets uh, put on the position and then they're there uh, with their own discretion. Um, in most states, there are multiple executive positions that are elected. So, for example, in Oregon, the Secretary of State is not appointed, is elected, the state treasurer is elected, the state uh, um, super, school superintendent. This is a pretty common uh, arrangement for states. Most states have some kind of multiple executive. Some states have a very robust multiple executive. Uh, Texas is one of those states. A number of different statewide officers, particularly the commissioner of lands, are elected and have direct power over a particular policy area without any kind of interference by the governor. 
Um, now, these other elected executives, they can make some appointments as well, but they tend to have a very narrow lane of uh, policymaking discretion and a very small uh, area where they can actually just directly uh, uh, make an impact. Obviously, in these other sort of sub-gubernatorial uh, um, statewide elections, interest groups have a very strong interest in getting the right person into those uh, positions because these are really direct policy-making positions. I mean, if you're interested in uh, public school policy, educational policy, you really have a large concern for who's going to be the state school superintendent. Because even though education policies are largely made at the local level, um, the state superintendent has control over resources and standards uh, um, and uh, other kinds of tools to incentivize certain kinds of educational practices and de-incentivize others. And so you're really going to want the right person in that particular job. If educational policy isn't anywhere near your interest group's interests, then this who is the state school superintendent really doesn't matter to you. Um, but uh, the when, you know, pr uh, supporting a governor who is on your side, uh, who has educational policy goals aligned with your group, um, is not going to automatically give you the wins that you would get if you get the school superintendent uh, elected, the, the, the favorable person. So um, there are, just to note the difference between our federal system and our, uh, and our states, uh, many of our, uh, most of our states, Unitary executive, so electing the president means you get to elect the entirety of the executive branch. And so the stakes are very high. Uh, obviously, you would, you know, you want to have the governor uh, be a person who is aligned with the policies that your interest group wants to have. But in state politics, that's not necessarily the end all of, like, if you lose the, 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 the gubernatorial election, you could win other statewide races that would help you specifically. But it's, it's all really the same, the same point is that executive power can be used very directly. Now, there are limitations to executive power uh, because executives can only do that which has been um, created for them by the legislature. Uh, and um, there, there are uh, certain forms of discretion, absolutely, this is why executive power is so useful, that get created when a legislature creates a program and then allows that program to be implemented with a high level of discretion by, uh, the, um, by the state government, by the, by the executive branch, either the, not the state government, the executive branch. Um, but uh, it, because it's so difficult to get legislative victories uh, and because it's so time consuming, the relationship that is built on electoral politics in the legislative branch is very different because what you're trying to do there, as I indicated last week, is trying to build these long-term relationships, essentially of dependency, so that you can be supporting people who will get, uh, stay in the legislature, get important committee assignments, gain seniority, and have uh, more ability to pull the levers of power in your policy area. And they will be dependent on you and your support, your organization's support for their continued re-election. That's the ideal, it's a long game. In presidential and gubernatorial politics, it's a much shorter game. Uh, you're looking for, because policy victories are available in the short term, they're available very quickly through direct executive power, you're looking for short-term victories. And it's also true that term limits come into play. The president obviously has a two-term term limit. Many governors, most governors have uh, term limits as well. And so you're not looking in supporting executive candidates, you're not looking to generate a long-term uh, sort of codependent relationship like you are when, when you're uh, campaigning for legislative seats. Uh, you're looking for 
a quick victory and to take advantage of your connection to the executive power. Now, there are two main ways in which uh, executives can uh, create a favorable policy environment. One is the direct application of executive power, executive orders. Just here's the policy. Uh, and um, the reason why executives use their executive power to put through a policy that they promised on the campaign trail is one, they want to reward their supporters. The, that's actually part of the bargain, right? There really is a transactional nature to electoral, to executive electoral politics that is not quite so present in uh, legislative politics. It's not, it's not quite so transactional. It's more in the legislative realm. It's more about creating that codependent long-term relationship. In the ex executive electoral politics, we're going to support you because you're going to give us the victory and the, the kind of the, tr the tradition, the norm of the way that executives behave is that they try to keep as many of these promises as possible. Um, they want to reward their supporters. They also obviously want to maintain their coalition for re-election. And this is, of course, for first-term uh, presidents and first-term governors who uh, are going to get term limited out. You obviously want to get re-elected uh, with at least as much or if not more support. Uh, and so you want to reward your supporters so that they stick around the next time. Um, and even though there is kind of this logical flaw in maintaining electoral support because once you're a second term, uh, term limited out executive, you have no real interest in, uh, or no direct electoral interest in maintaining your supporters' support because you don't need it anymore. It's not gonna do you any good. But the executives turn to legacy and their policy accomplishments uh, and sort of their, their popularity ratings and their popularity ratings are gauged towards how much it is that they're able to maintain the support of, uh, or the, the, the support of the people who support them. Uh, so really that's what executives, winning executives are doing. They're rewarding their supporters and they're saying, hey, you know, get me reelected and I'll continue to reward you. It's very transactional. Um, and when a pr winning president issues an executive order, you know, in the first year that rewards part of uh, his or her electoral coalition, that is the expectation. Uh, it, it's supposed to be transactional. The second way in which executives, it's important to interest groups uh, which executive is elected, is through executive appointments. Um, most policy at both the federal and the state level is made not at the top of the executive uh, branch, not by the president and the governor uh, themselves, but by appointed policymakers. Uh, this is particularly true in the federal government. There's a, a, a lot of policy at the state level is made in the legislature. Legislatures have much more control over policy at the state level than the federal level. The state legislatures are much more active than Congress is in terms of uh, passing bills and directly changing the policy landscape. But there are still plenty of uh, appointed policymakers. There are more elected policymakers uh, as well, as I noted earlier. Uh, but it's obviously important to get appointees who have a favorable viewpoint towards your policy. Now, when you're supporting a particular candidate for president or governor, what you're really supporting as an interest group is <clears throat> them as a person who's gonna keep certain specific promises and you want them to make you promises as part of like your essentially transactional bargaining, we'll support you at this high level if you give us the policy that we want, if you, if, if, if you block federal aid to uh, abortion clinics, for example. That's a common one that the pro-life uh, movement wants from winning presidents. And because there are certain uh, 
discretionary use of funds, particularly foreign aid, that the president can just sign an executive order and says this money can't go to organizations that uh, provide reproductive services. Uh, <clears throat> you, get, you get that win. But what you're really mostly, because policy is made in such a much more diffuse way, as we'll see in the next lecture, uh, you're really voting for and supporting either a Republican or a Democrat in a kind of a generic way. Um, which of the two parties has a policy orientation that aligns with your expectations and desires? Um, and generally, that's an easy question to answer because uh, you are already part of the electoral coalition at the legislative level for sure, <clears throat> but just broadly of a particular party. Um, parties put together like these, these electoral coalitions by essentially saying, yes, our platform is aligned with these groups. If you're the Democratic Party, they're aligned with uh, labor, they're aligned with environmentalists, they're aligned with uh, uh, people who look for social justice, people who are looking for economic equality, um, education, support. You know, broadly, it, the Democratic coalition is built around robust government support, uh, resources, regulation, um, and the Republican platform is built around trying to restrict that, cutting taxes, cutting regulations, uh, generating more free market solutions, incentivizing free market solutions instead of government solutions. So whichever one of those two broad categories of policy orientation your group's interests align with, you're going to be behind that, uh, that party. Uh, now that's not to say that, that, you know, let's say that you have a generally liberal uh, set of interests that uh, um, you want represented in liberal policies that you're always 100% going to support Democratic candidates for governor or for uh, state uh, school superintendent. Um, there are certain kinds of you know, character-based reasons why you might support a Republican, somebody who's actually, you know, for example, a, a quirky Republican. Like Massachusetts is a very strongly Democratic state that frequently elects Republican governors. Um, and it's because the sort of policy uh, landscape in Massachusetts is such that you can be a socially liberal uh, or reform-minded Republican who has certain kinds of standard fiscal uh, Republican policies, but in so either social areas or education or infrastructure, uh, you have what looks more like a liberal orientation. Uh, so it's not always the case that every interest group essentially has you know, okay, we're Republican interest groups, we're Democratic interest groups, and we're only gonna support those candidates. That's generally the case, uh, but it's particularly in, at the gubernatorial level. And then in uh, statewide elected offices like Attorney General and Secretary of State uh, and um, School Superintendent, Commissioner of Lands, uh, Utility Commissioners, those kinds of uh, people definitely aren't gonna always align with the party brand that uh, would get a particular uh, interest group to always be supporting a Republican or always supporting a Democrat no matter what. But in general, and for definitely at the federal level, like there's only one, you only get to elect one person for the executive branch, and then the entire executive branch of the federal government has the partisan orientation of the party that wins. And it's almost always the case that when you want something from the executive branch, that it's gonna be easier to get it if you have the correct partisan orientation and it's gonna be harder to get it if you have the incorrect partisan orientation. It doesn't mean that it's impossible to lobby and I will talk about that uh, in a future lecture. It, there is still, you, and you're still going to lobby, but you, you absolutely wanna have the correct partisan orientation. Um, and this goes whether you're playing offense or defense. And in fact, uh, whether you're playing offense or defense can actually be a result 
of which partisan orientation uh, you have. So for example, if your partisan orientation is pro-democratic, during a Republican administration, your interest group is gonna be playing defense. You know that there are gonna be removal of resources, there are going to be deregulation, there's going to be a, a more free market orientation towards policy from the Department of Energy, the Department of Education, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Commerce. You know this because that's what the winners get. They get that Republican orientation to policy in all of those departments for four to eight years uh, and beyond if there's, a, if there's a third term won by that party, um, which happens, but it doesn't happen that often. Um, you know you're getting that, and if, uh, you, if that goes against your interests, you're gonna be playing defense. So you're hoping to ride out that Republican administration uh, with as little change to the policy orientation as po the pre-existing policy orientation as possible. And you're gonna wait until you have a chance to get a Democratic administration in there. The same thing goes for Republicans when there's a Democratic administration. Um, you play defense. And as I indicated uh, before, and I'll repeat for this time and probably many times throughout this course, um, it's always easy to play defense. And so when you lose the executive uh, election, you don't get the right partisan orientation, you wanted a Republican and you get a Democrat or vice versa, uh, you're gonna play defense for that four to eight years. And there are tools that are, uh, that are available to uh, um, organizations that are playing defense that are not available to organizations that are playing offense. Um, it is harder to play defense in the executive policymaking arena because discretionary power is so much easier to use. It's way easier to play defense in the legislative arena where you basically just have to stop an already cumbersome and obstacle-ridden legislative process. Um, the executive policymaking process, while it's not the snap of a finger, it is more streamlined and, and depending particularly on what the policy is, um, if, it's just, if, it's, if it's a wide open, uh, sort of discretionary regulatory power, which a lot of federal uh, regulatory agencies have and, and some state regulatory agencies have, then it's harder to play defense uh, on that. Uh, but you still can. So that's what is so important. And again, it's pretty obvious. Why do you want, why does an interest group have such a concern over who wins the presidency and who wins uh, governor's mansions? Is because they have both direct tools of making policy happen, and then they also appoint a bunch of people who themselves will bring a policy orientation that is either beneficial to your, your interest group or uh, is problematic for your interest group. So uh, with one particular election, you can get a lot of results. Whereas legislative elections, you have to win, help win a majority, and then you have to foster these long-term relationships. 